Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning, I'm Lily Jamali. We begin with the latest on wildfires burning across the state. Conditions have been more favorable to crews battling the Caldor Fire in El Dorado County. Yesterday, firefighters were able to limit growth to a little more than 3,000 acres. More than 20,000 residents remain evacuated from their homes. El Dorado County Sheriff Sergeant Eric Palmberg says they'll continue to patrol these areas until residents are allowed back in. The Sheriff's Office, as well as a multitude of other allied agencies from our region and state, are out in the area of all of the evacuated areas. We are diligent doing 24-hour patrol. Fortunately, the vast majority of people have stayed out of the area. The fire has destroyed at least 100 structures. And crews battling the massive Dixie Fire have also been able to take advantage of calmer weather over the last 24 hours. While spot fires continue to pop up, firefighters have been able to bolster containment lines. The biggest danger continues to be on the eastern part of the fire in Lassen County. Although thousands remain evacuated there, nearly 4,000 people have been able to return to their communities this week. As these massive wildfires continue to burn across Northern California, state officials are warning that the worst could be yet to come. Here's Cal Fire Chief Tom Porter. Last year at this time, uh, we were deploying teams all over California to lightning fires that had occurred and turned into complexes and ultimately became uh, the biggest uh, and most acres ever burned in California's uh, history that we are, have been tracking. Uh, this year, we're on track to do just the same. Uh, we are ahead of acres burned to date at this point. Porter says Cal Fire has all of its employees on fires across the state, and there is a major concern about a lack of additional resources. But just yesterday, the California Office of Emergency Services announced that they'll be getting some help from out of state. Crews and aircraft from Utah, Louisiana, Wisconsin, and West Virginia will be assisting with the Caldor and the Dixie fires. Porter says it's been a challenge getting help from out-of-state agencies because many are dealing with fires of their own. In an effort to stave off rolling blackouts again this year, the California report has learned that the Newsom administration is moving forward with five new energy projects set to be fueled by both natural gas and diesel fuel. This comes after the governor issued an emergency proclamation last month to, quote, expedite clean energy projects and relieve demand on the electrical grid during extreme weather events this summer. But Alexis Sutterman with the nonprofit California Environmental Justice Alliance points out that diesel is not green. 
We're extremely concerned with hearing about the new power generators just springing up out of the blue after the governor's proclamation. Resorting to diesel, even though it is an emergency situation, it just creates another emergency situation in which people are breathing in toxic air. So we really don't think it's a good solution to just be elevating another crisis that we see in terms of our air quality and public health. The California Energy Commission confirms that the projects will be powered by both natural gas and diesel, and that there are five projects in communities near Fresno, along with Roseville and near Yuba City, all places that already have power plants in their neighborhoods. Republican Assemblyman James Gallagher, who represents a community where one of these projects is slated to go, says he's struck by how fast this is happening. Normally there would be much more process, there would be much more input, Um, And obviously that is getting fast tracked through, I I believe, through an emergency process. Um, And now they're rushing to do this um, at the last minute. These power generation projects are set to start running by next month, which Gallagher notes is around the same time as the recall election. It is an extraordinary timeline by any measure, according to multiple people we asked. On behalf of the governor's office, a spokesperson for the California Natural Resources Agency says, quote, these temporary generators are a contingency to shore up grid reliability in the face of extreme heat challenges this summer across the West. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country, on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice fulfill his oath, or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As we continue to watch events unfold in Afghanistan, the Afghan diaspora is watching too. Many are glued to their cell phones and their TV screens, watching Afghanistan's citizens cling to departing airplanes and women once again being forced to cover their heads. That pain is resonating half a world away on the streets of L.A., Fallon Zuhal Ferguson is the child of Afghan refugees. Her parents fled during the Soviet-Afghan war in the 1980s to the U.S. The Taliban's blitz of her family's homeland, she says, is something she never thought would happen. Frankly, I am so disgusted at how our people have been abandoned. Zuhal Ferguson is now 24 years old, and she helped organize a recent vigil outside the federal building in West Los Angeles for the Afghan lives lost during the past 20 years of war. I'm so hurt to see my own people try so hard to find a better life, because that could have been me, that could have been any one of us here, but we're the lucky ones, we're the privileged ones out of all this. Many Afghans living in L.A., like Hosai Afridi, worry about the future of Afghanistan's estimated 16 million women under Taliban rule. I so, so, so sad that I, these past two days I cannot sleep. 
Afridi just couldn't fight off the tears when thinking about those left living in the chaos that's been prompted by the Afghan government fleeing and the U.S. government's military withdrawal. They're worried about their daughters and their sons, you know, and their husband and their brother, that they're going to be not there in the next morning. Imagine living like this every single second that you're living in Afghanistan. <laughs> According to the American Community Survey by the U.S. Census, an estimated 150,000 Afghans live in the U.S., with the largest concentration found in the Bay Area community of Fremont. But like many Afghans in the U.S., Afridi believes the nation needs to accept more refugees. Otherwise, she says, we commit those Afghans left behind to subjugation by a ruthless Taliban regime or worse. For the California Reports, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb in Los Angeles. If you're among the millions of Californians who's tried to move during the pandemic, chances are it's been tough. And there's been more than one reason for that. Low supply, high demand among them. But contributing to that, the Federal Reserve has kept interest rates super low during the pandemic, with the aim of sparking more economic activity. Low interest rates spur people to buy homes. Well, for more on the state of the housing market, I recently spoke with Mary Daly. She's the president of the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank. Demand for homes has surged during the pandemic. People had income, either because they were able to keep working or because we had a lot of fiscal support that helped aid people in getting through it. So their, their balance sheets, if you will, are in really good shape. And they want to purchase homes because they want more space. If you're going to be stuck at home, you want a lot of space to be there in. Mm -hmm. And so people changed their priorities and they started purchasing homes. Well, home supply didn't keep up. We were already short of housing and it got sh in shorter supply during the pandemic. Rewinding just a little bit, I don't think you mentioned interest rates. Those are decisions that are guided by you and other policymakers on the monetary policy side. I'm sure there are people who would want this whole interview to be spent me asking you, is the Fed creating a housing bubble and bubbles in other assets that sure. simply wouldn't be there if we were at a normal rate? It's an important question to ask. We lowered the interest rate, and absolutely that spurs economic activity. That's what it's supposed to do. Because when we lower the interest rate, people can buy a home, which supports the housing market and all the furniture and remodeling you have to do. But it also lowers car loan rates and small business loan rates and big business loan rates, which support job growth and other kinds of other kinds of activities. So at the center of the economic activity we observe when I look around is the fact that it's cheaper to borrow now and that supports economic activity. So you're saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, yes there is overheating potentially in the housing market, but it's worth it given the benefits that you see in other parts of the economy. Is that what right? What I would say is that monetary policy is a very blunt tool. It's one thing we control the interest rate. Controlling the interest rate is very important for spurring economic activity and one of the places that always goes up in, in these situations is housing. Mm -hmm. And the housing market is 
we're, there's a surge in demand that is partly driven by affordability now with the interest rate lower, but is also driven by the need for people. They have good balance sheets and they want to get, they want to buy an asset. They want to buy a house. They want to invest in assets. That's actually something that is positive in our economy. And the imbalances we see right now between demand and supply that are boosting the housing market, that's not the same thing as the housing crisis or the bubbles that people really worry about because those were caused in large part when we look back they were caused by people being in a very poor position to purchase that house mm -hmm. when I see the housing prices go up I say yeah that's absolutely demand and supply the lower interest rate certainly is something that's contributing but if we raise the interest rate to offset it we would have a small correction in the housing market and we would put a lot of people out of work and a lot of small businesses would have to close and other businesses would have to scale back activities and that would actually derail the economy. So when you net net that, then the answer is this is the interest rate being low is essential for us continuing to get past the pandemic. It is a time of extraordinary intervention. Can you think of another time where there's been intervention in the markets at this level? I can't think of another time in my history, my living history, or the living history of most of anyone I know, where the interventions by the Fed and the fiscal agents, again, at all um, levels, have been as large as they are now. This will go down as a historical moment, and that's true globally as well. But we were fighting a global pandemic. We are fighting a global pandemic, which you know took us to our to our knees as an economy and making sure that everybody gets can get back up that's that's essential and i think what's remarkable what i really will feel pleased about forever is that everybody saw that and everybody worked as hard as they could that was mary daly president of the san francisco federal reserve bank and now to our sister show, The California Report's weekly magazine. This week, they're bringing us the final installment of a documentary about a man who came to L.A. from Mexico as an undocumented immigrant and ended up a TV star. Host Sasha Coca has a preview. Mauricio Hernandez loved cars. He started out sweeping the floor of an L.A. body shop, and then he had an unexpected brush with fame when the clunkers he transformed into custom vehicles were featured on the MTV hit series, Pimp My Ride. Today's your lucky day, Wyatt. I'm about to pimp your ride. But Mauricio's work was mostly behind the scenes. His real fame came when a wealthy investor decided to open a branch of the body shop in Mexico, and Mauricio was offered a gig as the host of the Spanish-language version of the show, called Tuneame la Nave. But going back to Mexico was a huge risk for Mauricio. Without papers, he couldn't just fly back to California to see his family at Christmas. Even though he became a famous TV host, Mauricio found himself trudging through the desert, trying to cross the border with some coyotes. I knew those two guys were getting high on the way. I knew the smell of Kristen meth, and I caught them like a couple of times smoking. And that's why they were walking so fast, they were not getting tired. Then things started to go really wrong. And I was alone, left out in the mountains. The only light we had was the moon. You could hear snakes. You could hear the bushes move. Mauricio's death-defying journey in the desert and another unbelievable series of coincidences helped him think about what was really important. And it wasn't cars or fame. 
That was the California Reports Magazine host, Sasha Coca. And you can listen to the full documentary if you tune into this week's California Report Magazine or subscribe to the podcast. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Blue Shield of California, rebuilding the future of health care with every Californian in mind, from quality and equitable care to not-for-profit values. Learn more at news.blueshieldca.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And that is the California Report for this Friday, August 20th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and Chris Hoff, with assistance from Seal Muller. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Lily Jamali. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.